0: Go ahead and uh, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Um, we're going to discuss some some mysteries here that Paul's going to deal with later in Corinthians. So we're kind of warming up to some stuff that's going to happen later. But um, on the way up here, and actually since I've been standing here right now, I solved another mystery that... So in in this section, uh, Paul is going to talk about spiritual food and spiritual drink. And this morning when I got here, I, uh, I made myself some coffee and I had a coffee mug and I was drinking out of it. And then when I was sitting back here singing, you know, coffee cups are kind of like, you know, worship props, you hold them and, and pray to Jesus with your coffee cup. And and I opened my eyes and I realized it wasn't the coffee cup that I've been drinking from since this morning. So whoever's coffee that I'm drinking right now, I apologize, and I don't know when I got it, but the other cup I just found, I put it here at some point. So they're both going to be right here. I don't think that has anything to do with the spiritual drink that Paul talks about in this passage, but but it's a, it's a personal, uh, you know, uh, my, mystery that's been solved. Uh, you should be in 1 Corinthians 10 now. Start in verse 1. And um, let's see, am I in the right chapter? Yes, I am. Uh, we're going to study through verse 11. And then next week we'll start in verse 12. But I'm going to read through verse 12 to get a little bit of overlap. Okay, so you can see where we're headed. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, Paul writes, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, All ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted, and do not become idolaters, as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality, as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain, as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come." Verse twelve. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. Jesus, we trust in your faithfulness, and we are aware of our weakness. Um, we, we're aware that uh, you desire to speak to us. You, it is your will to to impart spiritual truths to us that will strengthen us in the inner man and have us grow up into the fullness of the stature of Christ. And we also know that we are prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. So we pray for your goodness to lead us to repentance where needed. We pray that you would bind our wandering hearts to thee. We pray that you would open our eyes to see spiritual things, to see wonderful things in your law that we didn't know before. And that the result of all this would be that we would be closer to you, Jesus, our Savior. That the result of our Bible study here would not just be more knowledge, but that it would be more love and a lasting kind of love that ties our hearts to you. So keep us from the things that tempt us. Keep us near, nearer, Lord, to thee. And bless us. Bless us with whatever spiritual goods you have for your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So... Uh, this is somewhat of a, a sobering passage, you might say. It, it's not, you know, a bunch of feel-good verses. Um, Paul begins uh, in, he's in full teacher mode here, and he's got all his pupils lined up in, in Corinth listening to, to teacher Paul, and he begins with this familiar phrase he uses a lot when he gets into teacher mode. He says, I don't want you to be unaware. Or the, in the Old King James, it's, I don't want you to be Ignorant. And he'll say the same thing in chapter 12, verse 1, when he he introduces spiritual gifts, right? He says, concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I I do not want you to be ignorant. To the Thessalonians in that letter, he'll he'll say the same thing about the coming of the Lord, the return of Christ. He says, concerning those who have fallen asleep, I, I don't want you to be ignorant. This is a real concern for Paul, the teacher, for all the churches that he cares for. And it's one of the reasons why he writes so many letters. He doesn't want a church full of ignorant people. He has a burning passion, not only to preach the gospel, but also to teach about all of its riches. When Paul prays for the church, he doesn't just pray that the church would be saved. He prays that they would know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that they would know and comprehend the height, depth, breadth, all the dimensions of a love that extends beyond dimensions. Paul is fine being called a fool. He's fine with that. He owns that. He still maintains a strong aversion to ignorance and actual foolishness. He encourages the pastors under his care, study. He encourages the churches, give attention to readings. And he tells the churches over and over, I don't want you to be uninformed. I don't want you to be unaware. I don't want you to be ignorant. So this is a phrase that you'll see repeated in Paul's letters. And the first thing it tells you is that there are things worth knowing and... You should try to know them. You should you should study. You should try to know the things that are worth knowing. But the second thing that is signaled by this phrase is that there's going to be some things coming up that are not easy to understand. Uh, there's gonna be some subject matter coming up that we will tend to get wrong, which is why he means to say, This is an area I don't we can't afford your ignorance here. I don't want you to misunderstand what's going on. The whole reason he has to say, I don't want you to be ignorant, is because without a good teacher, without proper explanation, and without the right amount of attention given to these topics, it would be easy to become confused and disoriented when we come to these passages. Think about uh, chapter 12. I mentioned he's going to talk about spiritual gifts, right? I do not want you to be ignorant about spiritual gifts. How common is it for Christians to get off the rails in this area? Very common. We easily err in one of two extremes, right? The pendulum swings. Either we completely ignore all activities of the Holy Spirit, we ignore the gifts of the Spirit, relegate all of that to, you know, that kind of thing, to things in the past or weird people, okay? And we just let them handle it. Or, uh, we'll go on the other extreme and exaggerate the importance of certain manifestations of the Spirit and misuse them and make them more about self rather than service as they were intended. So Paul Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant about this, because he knows we have a tendency to act like ignoramuses in this area. So Paul says, I don't want I don't want that to be. To Thessalonians. Uh, he he includes the part about the end times and what happens after we die and what happens to uh the soul of a believer after death. That's confusing. Those are confusing subjects. It'd be easy for us to be ignorant in those areas. So Paul says, I don't want you to be. I don't want you to be ignorant. And then he says this bit about being baptized in a cloud, people spiritually eating food and drinking drink. And then he says, there's a rock that follows people. Oh, and by the way, it's Christ. And that's not even the lesson. That's just the illustration. That's just setting the, the scene. The actual lesson that he wants to teach is really in verse 12, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And we'll, we'll actually be starting next week with that verse. The thing that the Corinthians could be ignorant of is that they, they were somehow beyond such failures as the Israelites experienced and that they were so much more mature and better off. And Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant of this lesson from Israel's history that includes a specific warning for you today. I don't want you to mistake your past experiences as the same thing as your current maturity. Israelites have made that mistake before. This is how it went. Learn from their example. So, just like spiritual gifts or eschatology, these are still areas where the, the church finds itself in ignorance from time to time. So, also, the area of moral responsibility is an area that many Christians are ignorant in to this day. What does this look like? It looks like this phrase, I can do what I want. Okay? If you're saying, I can do what I want because grace or because this is my understanding of the gospel, then you are ignorant in the call to every Christian to maintain holiness. And he says, I don't want you to be ignorant in this. I don't want you to mistake your conversion experience for maturity. You can have one and still be an idiot, okay? And that, that's what he's telling I don't want you to be ignorant in this area. And, and the Corinthians had this specific problem, right? They said, I'm enlightened. We have knowledge. And he says, yeah, everyone has knowledge, big deal. And then later in 13, chapter 13, he'll say, yeah, knowledge, that's fine. Um, but without love, it's nothing. You're just a noise. And they might point to their conversion experience, or their right theology even, and say, see, I'm fine. I'm free. You can't tell me what to do. I have the same gospel as anyone else. And so now he says, are you sure you want to argue from that position? Have you met Israel? Have you read about Israel? They had a conversion experience too. They worshipped the right God. They had a baptism. They had spiritual food. They had the sacraments. And they really and truly held on to their rights just like you and would have absolutely loved your doctrine of I can do what I want. And they died in the wilderness. That's where their selfishness led. This is where your selfishness will lead. Not a great way to finish a race. Last week, Brian taught about discipleship and discipline and the value of continuing in habits that will ensure a strong finish to the race that you are running. In chapter 9, verse 24, he taught on this passage. I'm going to read it again. It says, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? And then he says, run in such a way that you may win it. Well, now after telling them that you can run this Christian life in a way to win, Now he reminds them that there's also a very real possibility of running it to lose. (laughs) He says there's a real possibility that you're in the race and you're losing. There's a way to run a race wrong. And this is what he doesn't want them to be ignorant about. He doesn't want them to think that now that you're in, do what you want. Live how you want. Just, you know, follow your muse. This is what he doesn't want them to be ignorant about. He uses the example of the Israelites who died in the wilderness as a warning for the Corinthians, that just because they've had a conversion experience, this does not mean that they have a right to be lazy. This does not mean that they are allowed to be ineffective. Having been called out of Egypt, the Israelites were then commanded to go and possess the promised land, which they promptly didn't. Christians, having been rescued from sin and what Paul calls the kingdom of darkness, are now commanded to grow up into the fullness of the stature of Christ and go and make disciples of all nations, and that command stands. So once again, the big picture of really verse 1 through all the way through verse 13 is this idea of taking heed to the bad examples of a generation of Israelites that died in the wilderness, so that you, as a church, as a generation of Christians, can avoid their mistakes and the consequences of those mistakes. The thing Paul doesn't want the Corinthians to be ignorant of is this. Positive spiritual experiences do not make detrimental spiritual mistakes impossible. (laughs) To say this another way, Christian, failure on your part is an option. You can mess things up real bad. So watch your step and watch your Savior. Now first, even before that, we get to deal with some really mysterious stuff here in the first four verses. So go back to verse 1. Verse 1 and 2 reads like this, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Uh, he says, our fathers, he's talking about the Jewish patriarchs, the ancestors here. This would apply to Gentiles as well, according to Paul's theology. Abraham is called the father of faith. So we have him as a type of our father, too. As a Gentile, you can go to camp and sing, Father Abraham had many sons. Okay, I am one of them, and so are you. You don't need too much cognitive dissonance there, singing that as a Gentile. Um, but these fathers, they pass through the sea. That's the Red Sea in the book of Exodus. After the plagues come on Egypt, and Pharaoh sends the Israelites away, they come to the Red Sea, and the Lord miraculously split the sea, and they walk through on dry land. And Moses, uh, or excuse me, Paul calls this baptism. That's important. More on that in a second. The cloud that he's talking about here is probably the cloud that led the people through the wilderness. It's also in a cloud that God meets with Moses on Mount Sinai. This cloud is also called a baptism for Israel. Now, Paul intentionally uses a very Christian word here. He's speaking Christianese to the Corinthians. There's a place for it. Baptism. Originally, this word just meant washing and was common in lots of religious practices, but by the time he's writing this, baptism had already been claimed as a word by the Christians and invested with Christian theology. Jesus had told the disciples, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In the book of Acts, in response to Peter's Pentecost sermon, the first sermon ever preached in the church, people cry out, uh, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter says in Acts 2.38, repent and let every one of you be baptized. So that was something very Christian already at this point. In Acts 16, the Philippian jailer gets saved. One of the first things Paul does with him is baptize him and everyone he knows, okay? Everyone that lives in his house. All of this stuff happened before 1 Corinthians was written. So when Paul says the Israelites were baptized, he is being very clear about the point he's trying to make. He's drawing a parallel between Old Testament history and New Covenant theology and practice. Baptism, for the Christian, is a rebirth. More, more than that, it's death and rebirth. Romans three, Paul writes, Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus... Were baptized into his death. It is going under the water, dying, being raised up again to newness of life. When Israel came out of Egypt, that was their death and rebirth. It was the death of a slave nation. The old had gone and the new had come. Free Israel was born. They were new creations. God created a nation out of a bunch of slaves. And the crossing of the Red Sea was their formative event. It was their 4th of July as a nation. It makes sense that this would be called a baptism. They leave behind the things of their old dead life, the leaven of Egypt, literally and figuratively. They leave behind Egyptian customs. They pass through the water, and on the other side, they rejoice in their salvation. The cloud that was on Sinai is another kind of baptism. This is where they experience the presence of God, and it's also where they receive the law. This is where much of their old practice was put to death with a series of thou shalt nots. Okay? It's another ingredient of baptism, death. The the Egyptian part of Israel was put to death at Sinai. And when they come up out of the water, so to speak, they were sent on their marching orders to cross the desert and go take hold of the promises of God. And they decided not to do that. Getting ahead of ourselves. Look at verse 3 and 4. Paul says, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. What was their spiritual food? Well, it's manna, miraculously provided bread for every day of their wilderness wandering. Psalm 78 calls it the bread of angels. That's spiritual food. The spiritual drink, he explains, was water from a rock. This isn't natural. It's supernatural. Water from a rock, that's not usually the way things work. Now, I want to take a moment here and notice the way that Paul is using the word spiritual. He is using this word correctly, and not exactly the way modern people use it. We're talking about spiritual food and drink. We're not talking about imaginary food and drink. We're not even talking about a food that is real, but becomes spiritual if you think the right thoughts and click your heels together three times. We run the risk of making the mistake, as modern people, that spiritual somehow equals immaterial. Or worse, worse than that, spiritual means not real. Imaginary. No, no, no. We cannot fall into that trap. This is a false understanding of what spiritual means. It is a false spirituality. The dualism of material versus spiritual is something that the incarnation confronts and defeats. What was their spiritual food? Was it the word of God? No. How did they eat it? Did they have morning quiet time? No. Their spiritual food was food. And then they're told that you're not to live only on this food, but the word of God as well. But their spiritual food in the wilderness was food. It was food and water that was uh, supplied miraculously, but it was not in any way imaginary. It is not... um, We can't understand spiritual as meaning less real. Spiritual doesn't even mean non-physical, necessarily. It means more than merely Physical. That's what we mean when we talk about Christian spirituality. When Jesus in John 6 says the flesh profits nothing, okay, we know that doesn't mean all physical matter is worthless. Like, ah, uh, no, God created it, He said it was good. We know Paul saying our resurrection is not a spiritual resurrection in that we are without bodies. He says we will get more than real bodies, and they're called spiritual bodies that are real, more than physical maybe metaphysical, structures. I know all of this is a sidebar. I realize it has nothing to do with this text. It does have a lot to do with where Paul is going in chapter 13. um, Sorry, in verse 13. Not verse 13. Two mistakes. I'm only allowed one more. Chapter 11. It actually has a lot to do with where we're going in chapter 11, so stay tuned. But I spend this time on this subject because as believers in God, we cannot believe that spiritual means less real. God is spirit. Is he more or less real than the things that you can observe and measure? More in every way. He is real in every sense, in ways we can't even comprehend. He's more than real, more real than mere matter, which is changeable. But Jesus, who today lives in a resurrected, glorious, glorious, glorified body, is not immaterial. Jesus came in the flesh. He will return in the flesh, and we will be resurrected in the flesh, Job says, with these eyes I will see God, which is called a spiritual body. That's what Paul calls a spiritual body, later in 1 Corinthians, as a matter of fact. Miraculously provided, and of a heavenly nature, but very, 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 very real. The Israelites had some very major league spiritual experiences, and they were all presented to them physically in the, in the material world. They were baptized, they ate and they drank, and it's as, as though these, it, I'm sorry, it is through these means that God intended to make them into the new creation that he designed. Israel was made new by their exodus out of Egypt. They couldn't just think thoughts about the promised land, they had to actually walk through the sea. They could not have a faith in the promised land that profited them anything without walking towards the promised land and taking it. Israel was made new by their exodus out of Egypt and their receiving of the law and their encounter with the presence of God. And then they were sustained by spiritual food and drink. And Paul uses new covenant language like baptism to describe these things. And we are expected to draw the line between the spiritual food and drink of Israel and the sacraments of bread and wine and communion, which again is where Paul is headed to in chapter 11. Israel was baptized once, we were baptized once, we are born again once, and then we are sustained through our spiritual food, just as they were. Baptism once, communion perpetually. Now again, reminder, the point that Paul is warming up to is simply this. You might be baptized. And you might be taking communion regularly. And you might still be messing up real, real bad. You need an example? Look back to Israel. Those of you who stand, take heed, lest you fall. Now there's this confusing part in verse 4. Paul says there's a rock that followed them. That's weird. Uh, Whatever you have in your mind is probably wrong, but maybe draw a picture of it anyway. I'd love to see it. Okay. Um, this, and then it says the rock was Christ. And that's the second more tricky part. The rock followed them and it is Christ. How literally are we supposed to take this? Well, it was a well-known Jewish tradition at the time of Paul that the rock that Moses struck actually rolled around and followed them. That was their tradition. That Paul didn't invent that idea. Okay. That was in the Babylonian Talmud it actually says that. You can read all about it. Um, it's weird. It's not in the Bible, but it was a tradition that they were aware of. We know from the book of Numbers that the water from a rock miracle happens twice, once at the beginning of their time in the wilderness, and then once again 40 years later. So in that sense, we see that the rock you know, started at point A, maybe it ended at point B, if it was the same rock, so it followed them in that sense. Another way of reading this could be that the water followed, like it flows from the rock, formed a river, followed them along their, their way. The details about this are less important than Paul's other, more difficult point. The rock that followed them is Christ. Really? Well, yes. It's in the Bible. Really. Also, the scripture teaches that David is an anointed one, which is the same word as Christ. Solomon is Christ. A priest is Christ. You won't read it with those exact words, but when you read in the Old Testament of your anointed one, that word is Christ. And there are many, many examples in the Old Testament of anointed ones. These are not all examples or any examples of Jesus of Nazareth being disguised as other people or sneaking around like looking like a rock. Okay. Um, But all of the examples of the anointed ones in scripture are pointing forward to Jesus of of Nazareth, the Christ, capital T, capital C. So when we read the rock was Christ, I think we're talking in those terms. Now when we see other examples of Christs in the Old Testament, each one teaches us something about Jesus himself, the Christ. Paul describes the Old Covenant as types and shadows, whereas Jesus is the substance that casts the shadow. The rock that followed them was Christ, a miraculous, life-giving source And we see in Exodus and Numbers how well this rock prefigures Jesus of Nazareth. The people need water, and Moses strikes the rock. God is, throughout the Old Testament, referred to as the rock. But it is only in Jesus when we see the rock of ages cleft for me. Our rock is struck, and it is in the striking, in his crucifixion, where blood and water flow where we gain that which sustains our life. This is also why Moses is so severely punished for the second go-round. A few decades later, the people are thirsty again. Man, can't ever satisfy them. What does Moses do? He, He says, God, they're complaining again. It's been 40 years. They're still really good at it. And God says, go to this rock and speak to it. Now, once the rock of ages has been struck once and for all, how do we access the blessings therein? I'll tell you. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's what we do. That's how we access all the blessings of Christ. When when you evangelize, you don't tell people in in response to the question, what must I do to be saved? You say, go and crucify the Son of God. You never say that. You know why? Because it already happened, right? We tell them, call on the name of the Lord. The striking was a one time thing. Jesus has been crucified once and for all. Moses, instead of speaking to the rock, which would have given us this picture beautifully, instead strikes it twice and is severely punished for it. And Hebrews chapter 6 says you can't, you can't repent from that. You can't walk back from that. You can't crucify Christ twice. And he is prevented from entering the promised land. The rock that followed them was Christ. How this really worked out physically, I'm sure I don't know. The main point Paul is trying to show is that the people who left Egypt and received the law and were cared for by God through every step of their time in the wilderness still all died without receiving the promises. Now everyone dies, and there's no shame in that necessarily, but he says God didn't like them. He says God was not well pleased with most of them. That's not good. That was their end, even though they had all these spiritual experiences. Verse 5, he says, But with most of them God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now, that's a weird translation. Some translations say they were overthrown in the wilderness. Uh, The literal reading is they were laid low. Uh, And there's this idea of being buried, perhaps, which is why the New King James arrives at its translation. But we know what happened to them. It is accurate to say they all died in the wilderness, except for a couple guys. So the point is these people had a conversion experience and they did not walk with God. Don't make this mistake. Don't be ignorant of this risk. And then verses 6 through 11 all describe all reasons why they were scattered in the wilderness and some of the mistakes they made. And you'll see that just like there was a kind of baptism in the Old Testament that prefigured baptism in the New. And just like there was spiritual food and drink that prefigured spiritual food and drink of the New Covenant, so also there were temptations and sins committed against the Old Covenant that foreshadow mistakes that can still be made in the New Covenant. Verse 6 says, Now these things became our examples... To the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Paul just spells it out right here. It's the same thing you read in Romans 15, verse 4. He says, For whatever things were written before were written for our learning. There's a lesson here. Keep your eyes open. Find the lesson. And he says, Here's the lesson. I won't make you wait for it. Don't be like those guys. That's the lesson. The reason he brings up these bad examples is because we need to learn from them. Verse 7 says, Do not become idolaters, as were some of them. This was still a problem in the early church, and through taking on of other forms, it's an issue in the church today. Paul says this was the problem for Israel. It's the problem for Corinth. We know it's the problem for the church in every age. Keep reading. It says, As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That's his example of idolatry. Now he's quoting a passage here from the book of Exodus. It's the golden calf incident. Rose up to play is a euphemism. I've mentioned in our study in Corinthians how the gods and goddesses of Corinth were worshipped with sex. There were were temple prostitutes that were employed so that demons could be worshipped. And this wasn't new. This is something... Well, nothing is new under the sun. (laughs) The people of Israel worshipped the golden calf in much the same way. Paul is drawing lines here. He's connecting dots from the failures of Israel to the temptations of the church in Corinth. He doubles down on the issue of chastity here. Verse 8, he says, Nor let us commit sexual immorality, as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. This is a different time Israel messed up. This is after Balaam, the guy with the talking donkey, remember? Not Shrek, Balaam. different, Different talking donkey. Balaam, he tries to curse Israel, and he couldn't. He couldn't curse Israel because they were blessed. But then a few chapters go by and he he could tell Israel's enemies, look, if you can get them to break God's laws, you don't need to curse them. They'll curse themselves. And that's what happens. you can read all about it in Numbers chapter 25. Idolatry and sexual immorality are seen together again. And the result is a plague that kills 23,000 in one day. Were there similar temptations for the Corinthians? Yes. And not only them, but for us. Sexual sin is still sin, and these temptations are to the are to the sins that our enemy knows will destroy us. These are the sins that our enemy knows will destroy us, just like in Balaam's day. That's the point Paul is getting at. Remember, in previous chapters, he has addressed this issue of a sort of tolerance that existed in Corinth that was not calling out sin, and not calling it by its name, sin. And they were just getting this issue all wrong. And so Paul, after telling them in chapter na- chapter 9, you're not training anymore. This is the actual race. There is an actual finish line, and you are being timed. He tells them that there are still things that are there to disqualify them in this race. There are things that are intended to trip them up and take them out of the competition. The purpose of this whole passage, it really echoes nicely uh, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. You're familiar with the passage. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. These are sister passages here. This passage about temptation coming at the heels of the verses about running a race in chapter 9, and Hebrews chapter 12, which tells how to run well, they're all saying the same thing here. And this phrase that you'll hear presented from this pulpit for as long as I'm standing behind it, looking unto Jesus, is essential to understanding Paul's warnings about temptation. Watch yourself, and watch your Savior. In the book of James, James says that each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And this being drawn away is the result of a slow drift that comes if your eyes are not fixed on an immovable object, on Christ the solid rock. Paul's references to the sins of the people of Israel are examples of times their eyes drifted, their focus changed, and the result was their destruction. Read verse 9. He says, Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted, and were destroyed by serpents. Verse 10. Nor complain, as some of them also complained, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Two more examples. The deal deal with the fiery serpents, that's a fun one. That's in uh, Numbers 21. And it came as a result of people speaking against God, essentially saying, you don't have our best interest in mind. That was their sin. And so the Lord sent venomous snakes, and many died. And they repented and called on the name of the Lord. And you know what happened? God told Moses to make a bronze serpent, and as many as looked at the serpent were then saved from the plague of snakes. And this is the Bible story, of course, that Jesus uses to warm up to John three sixteen. Starting in verse fourteen of John three, it says, "And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life." For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So so Paul brings up the snakes, because he doesn't want these Corinthians, these Christians, to fall into the same trouble of doubting God's goodness for them. Was this a temptation for the Corinthians? Absolutely. Absolutely probably now more than ever, with Paul spending chapter after chapter telling them, lay down your rights. Sacrifice your privileges. It's not about you. Become poor on purpose. Suffer on purpose. Let yourselves be cheated. There would be many who would respond to that message with the question, well, if if this is what we're called to, does God really have my best interest at heart? Yes. Do not tempt Christ. But in bringing up this story of the serpents, Paul, intentionally or otherwise, I don't know, shows once more the importance of having eyes fixed on the Savior. Healing from that plague came through faith, the fixed gaze of the soul upon a saving God. Now verse 10 mentions complaining. Now there's too many examples of this in Exodus and Numbers for us to pick just one. But the point is, and by now you know it, that these sins of the Israel that tripped up the Israelites, that blocked them, from receiving the blessings of God, that stopped them from entering the promised land are still sins that we are tempted to. The first generation that came out of Egypt died in the wilderness. When that was decided, after 12 spies going to the land, 10 come back with a negative report, two of them, Joshua and Caleb, say, let's go, we can take them. At that point, there was complaining. And God's response to that complaining was sentencing the generation to a 40-year death march. Paul really brings things down to everybody's level here in verse 10, doesn't he? Perhaps some of you could shrug off the call to avoid idolatry because you don't actively make sacrifices to actual idols. Perhaps you're successfully avoiding sexual temptation and living a holy life where that is concerned. But how about this one? How is your complaining? Isn't this a problem the Corinthians were having? You don't get to the schisms and the factions, the proto-denominations that the Corinthians were having without a great deal of discontentment being voiced. You don't get Christians suing each other, which is chapter 5, right? You don't get that without some complaining leading up to that. You don't have the arguments between the weak and the strong about food sacrificed to idols and this and that. You don't have all these issues without complaining getting into the mix. And so he says, Israel complained. How'd that work out for him? Mm-hmm. And he says, verse 11, he says, All these things that happened to them it's as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. These are the last days. The ends of the ages have come. To continue Paul's metaphor from chapter 9, the finish line is in sight. You're in the race. And you're not at the beginning of it. Do you know what athletes will often do at the end of a race, even like a marathon, a long race, okay, where they've been pacing themselves for miles and miles. But once the end is in sight, you'll see long-distance runners, after 26 miles, they'll start to sprint. How? I have no idea. That's another mystery, maybe just as much as the other ones in this chapter. How? But he's saying now. The end is in sight. The end of the ages has come upon you. It's time to run like you mean it. Like you mean to get somewhere and fast. The Israelites, who in many ways started out well with crossing the Red Sea and their baptism and their spiritual food and drink, they still managed to end poorly, an entire generation of them. No one in a race with the finish line in sight stops to boast about how well they started Man, that gunshot went off, and I was like, bam, and I was out of there, and I was like, first place for about 100 yards. (laughs) No one does that. He says, the end's in sight. We are to strive to finish well. Our faith is, in part, a preparation for a good death, which means one of the most important parts of your testimony is not some event in the past. It's how you're running right now. How you are running right now directly depends on where your focus is and what you are looking at. You will run towards that which is holding your attention. The thing that you are looking at will be your destination. So you look to yourself and you look to your Savior and you run to win. Jesus, we fix our eyes on you, the author and the finisher of our faith wanting you to hold us Lord. We don't doubt your faithfulness. We don't doubt your ability to keep us from stumbling. Uh, We know that even if we are faithless you remain faithful because you cannot deny yourself and we, we place our hope in all of these things but Lord we place our eyes focus on Jesus himself and say where you go we'll go. We're taking up our cross. We're following you. We're starting to run and we're running to win. Keep us, Lord. Keep us, our hearts, bound to Thee. Keep us from these temptations. Let us heed these warnings and seek true reality, God Himself, the Trinity. We're focused on You. Bring us to heaven, Jesus. And let us have our eyes and our hearts and our attention and our affection fixed there even now until the end of the race. Amen. 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 Please stand. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him of creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and he Amen. Saints, you are sent. Uh, update the insurance, the, insurance, the I turn conditioning. The, the, uh, yeah, thing for they sure. couldn't make it on Friday, so they're coming Monday.